Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and today we're going to be talking about June of 1993. Joining me today is my special guest, Pete Fidge. Hi, Pete. Hi, Will. How are you doing? I'm good. Pete, you were the singer of a band called Adorable. They charted on the modern rock charts. We're going to be talking about one of their songs later in this episode. Before we get to that, let's just refresh our memories on what 1993 was like. In June of 1993, Jurassic Park, the Steven Spielberg film, opened in theaters, breaking box office records. I didn't see it. Bill Clinton in the U.S., he introduced Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a Supreme Court justice nominee. And in the UK, the Black Crows and the Kinks were headlining the Glastonbury Music Festival. Summer was just starting for me after my seventh grade year of school. (laughs) Do you know what you were up to? Well, I was deep in the heart of a drawable. We were signed in probably March of 1992. Our album in the UK came out at the start of 93. And at the period you're talking, that was the time when our album came out in America. We were on a major on SBK in America. It was really weird being on a major, having been on a really cool indie We were suddenly label mates with Vanilla Ice, (laughs) Wilson Phillips, and uh, John Cicada. Does that mean that you were hobnobbing with them at industry parties? All the time. The tales I could tell you about Vanilla Ice and uh, Wilson Phillips. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) I remember um, the head of SBK came over to the UK early 93. We were taken out for dinner with him, with uh, Alan McGee, who was the head of Creation Records. And the head of SBK was talking in glowing terms about John Cicada and was telling us about how John Cicada was the next Elvis Presley. And we were trying really hard not to laugh. And Alan McGee was looking at us across the table and we had a reputation of being sort of troublemakers. And we'd made a decision that in America we were going to really, really try and toe the line and and try to make friends because we'd made so many enemies in the UK and I remember just the look the look that he was throwing us as the head of SBK told us that John Cicada was going to be the next Elvis Presley but we were we were very polite we just nodded and said that sounds great yeah nice well let's let's kick things off with a little music we're going to jump into the mystery achievement today we're taking something more from the middle of the charts because the lower ranking songs are from bands we've already heard from on the show Duran Duran put a song at number 30 and Living Color came in at number 17. So here's one that was a number 16 hit on the modern rock charts in June of 1993. See if you know what this is. All right, well, that was the mystery achievement for the episode. I'll just tell you what it was. That was Amy Mann singing I Should Have Known. Did you know that song? I do not recall Amy Mann at all. I know the name. But... All right, well, why don't, why don't we get into the higher ranking songs and the songs we're going to talk about for the episode. Uh, we've got one number one hit for the month. 
and it's a pretty big one. It spent five weeks on the top of the charts, and it's from a band called Porno for Pyros. They formed out of Jane's Addiction, and we've heard from Jane's Addiction on the show before. And following Jane's Addiction's 1991 breakup, singer Perry Farrell and drummer Stephen Perkins, they formed a new band called Porno for Pyros with Peter DiStefano on guitar and Martin Lenoble on bass. And I read a couple conflicting things about the name of the band. One said that the name was taken from an advertisement for fireworks in a pornographic magazine. The other one was that the name is a reference to the Los Angeles Rodney King riots that were taking place around this time. Maybe it's both. I don't know. The first thing I'm going to say is that Porno for Pyros is right up there in the top list of worst band names. <laughs> However, this has to be with the caveat that this is said by the lead singer of the band Adorable which, with the benefit of hindsight, I have to say, is a dreadful name. And sometimes one wishes one could have a time machine and go back and change elements of one's life. And changing the name of Adorable definitely would be pretty high on my agenda. Wow. If I could time travel. But having said that, Adorable is a bad band name. Porno for Pyros is worse. I agree. And I can tell you, I have this clear memory of being a middle schooler, hanging out with my friend, listening to this song for the first time. And I asked him who it was. And he said, porno for pyros. And being a rather sheltered individual, <laughs> I had never heard the word porno. And I had never heard the word pyro. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I asked him like five times and just could not figure out what the name of this band was. I doubt that's most people's experience, but... <laughs> It's just a dreadful name. The band, Porno for Pyros, they released their first album in 1993. Their first single, Cursed Female, went to number three on the modern rock charts in May. And in June, their second single, Pets, hit number one. Let's listen to it. Here's Pets. Lyrically speaking, it's pretty clear that the premise is more or less that humans have done a piss poor job of taking care of the planet and we might be better suited as pets to an alien race, which right around 93, there was starting to be a lot of interest in aliens. I know that X-Files began as a TV show in 1993. I wonder if this was part of that zeitgeist. Yeah, possibly. But moving on from that, um, yeah. my memory of uh, Porter for Pirates is we kind of came across them because uh, over in Europe, we played on at least a couple of festivals. We were on the same bill as Porno for Pyros. Mm -hmm. So I got to see them live a couple of times. And our drummer, Kevin, was a big Jane's Addiction fan and he was particularly into Porno for Pyros. But I didn't really like a lot of American bands at that time. My reference points for music was a lot of the UK bands of the kind of uh, post-punk era, Bunnyman and Psychedelic Furs, Jesus and Mary Chain, 
House of Love, The Cure, Banshees, The Sound. And the American bands, for me personally, they really weren't the bands that I was looking to. So Pixies, Sonic Youth, Throwing Muses, Breeders, those would have been bands that would have ticked my boxes. But apart from that, there wouldn't be many American bands in my record collection at that time. And so Porno for Pirates, they were of the better of the new generation of artists, but they didn't do it for me. Sure, yeah. They kind of left me cold. Do you have any thoughts on this song in particular? I mean, I, I guess I like it fine. It, it seems fairly memorable and it's reasonably hooky. So I, I get why it was a hit. I think it stands up well, actually. Even listening back to it now, sometimes when I think of the American bands of that era, you know, I, I think of a kind of a, a harder rock sound. And this has got a kind of a, a slightly more restrained feel to it, which I like. Yeah, I mean... You can hear some similarities to Jane's Addiction because obviously they have the same singer and everything. But yeah, it's a little spacier. It's less muscular maybe than what a lot of what Jane's Addiction was doing. Now, one thing that's, I think, less commonly known about this song is that it was actually written about eight years before it was recorded by guitarist Peter Stefano, And he wrote it about a girl named Vriana who he had been in love with when he was in seventh grade. But... This girl and her older brother were brutally murdered during a robbery. And, um, you know, I, I think, understandably, Peter never quite got over her. So that's what the origins of the song are. And originally it was much slower, but when he played it for Perry Farrell, Perry asked him to pick up the pace, and Farrell wrote some new lyrics, which obviously had nothing to do with murder. <laughs> and we ended up with a song that, that we know. I'm just going to say, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got nothing else to add to that than just, wow. Yeah. I can't imagine having the girl of your dreams be killed, what that would do to you. Anyway, here's a fun fact, though, uh, for fans of this song. Just to lighten it up. Yeah, just to lighten things up. Yeah, exactly. Most versions of the single for Pets include a cover of the Leonard Bernstein's Stephen Sondheim song, Tonight, from West Side Story. So if you've ever wanted to hear a Porno for Pyro's version of that, it's out there for you. Porno for Pyro's put out one follow-up album, and they charted a few more times on the modern rock charts. They also added Mike Watt from the Minutemen as a bassist for a little while. But the band broke up in 1998, and since then they've played a few reunion shows and are apparently currently sort of back together and working on material for a third album. All right, well, we're going to talk about Radiohead next. Radiohead is Tom York, brothers Colin and Johnny Greenwood, Ed O'Brien and Philip Selway. And these guys met while attending a boys' school in England, and they formed the band in 1985, although they were originally called On a Friday. (laughs) Dreadful name! (laughs) (laughs) Also a dreadful name, that's right. Uh, They kept that name for quite a while. Uh, In 1991, the band played what was only their eighth gig ever, although they'd been practicing regularly for six years. And there were some A&R reps there. They ended up signing to a six-album deal with EMI. But the label requested that they change their name. And they chose Radiohead after the Talking Heads song, Radiohead. Are you a Radiohead fan? Yes, but I really don't rate their first album at all. The Benz and OK Computer, I love. And have been quite influential to me. And I think in the UK, they kind of got a little bit overlooked on their first album they didn't really make a big wave on their first release yeah i think i read that 
when the single was first released in the UK, it only sold 6,000 copies and uh, was banned by the BBC for being too depressing. <laughs> but yeah, it, uh, it was released as a single in the US in 93, and it became a, a modest hit over here. It actually hit number 34 on the Hot 100, and it prompted a re-release in the UK, and that time around, it made it to number 7 in the UK. Well, we're going to listen to Creep. Like I said, it hit number two on the modern rock charts. The lyrics were inspired by, I guess, Tom York himself. He was, uh, let's say, obsessed with a woman for a little while, and he at some point followed her around for a few days or a week and presumably didn't feel great about himself for doing that. <laughs> so here it is, Creep. I want you to Special. I wish I was special, but I'm a There are lots of great things about this song. I struggled with it when it came out because even before the plagiarist litigation case, I kind of spotted that it was a, a massive lift from the Hollies, the air that I breathe. And I can't talk for other people. I can only talk about my experience. But in my early experience as a musician, for me, there was a competitive nature. And I kind of felt really miffed that Radiohead had had a massive hit by basically stealing off another artist. Now, you can talk about whether it's stealing or whether it's postmodernism, which is about referencing, but it really bugged me that their big hit, it wasn't original. Your first hit is the hardest hit to have, right? Your second hit is not as hard as your first. Your first is the hardest. And the press in the UK gave Radiohead a really easy ride on it. And with a lot of these bands, it kind of bugs me because it feels slightly cheating. I know as an artist, you don't mean to do it. And, you know, I have sometimes accidentally or maybe semi-intentionally ripped off, but I've never done anything like a Radiohead Creep or a Verve Bittersweet Symphony. So I always struggled slightly with this song. Mm -hmm. It is bloody brilliant. It is bloody brilliant. There is no denying that. But it is a lift. Sure. Yeah, so you, you mentioned Creep being based on another song. And that song was The Air That I Breathe, which was written by Albert Hammond and Mike Hazelwood. If I could make a wish I think I'd pass can think of anything I need To Tom York's credit, when he was approached about this, he fessed up pretty quickly and said, yeah, I did base the chords on the air that I breathe. And from what I understand is because he was so uh, readily willing to admit that, they decided to take a 
reasonably small percentage of royalties for the song. So Albert Hammond and Mike Hazelwood now have co-songwriting credits on the track, but they didn't take, you know, like the the 100% of royalties that the Rolling Stones demanded of the Verve, for example. (laughs) I know I've gone on about this a lot, but I don't want this to detract in any way about my admiration for Radiohead and a subsequent career. I actually hear similarities to some of the stuff that Adorable was doing with in, in the Benz. Our second albums came out around about the same time. And when I was forming Polak after Adorable split, when I was putting up posters, you know, one of the bands that I was referencing on the posters was Radiohead. You know, I saw OK Computer was definitely an album that I was referencing. You know, that's not to say that Polak ended up sounding like that, but that's the status that I held Radiohead in. They were an influence that I aspired to. Sure. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, I, I love the bands. I love OK Computer. There are many people who love Kid A, and it's been praised as one of the best albums of that decade. But uh, I think that Radiohead themselves feel pretty similarly to how you feel. My understanding is that the band felt pigeonholed by Creep, and they were frustrated by U.S. audiences who would shout out for them to play that song and then leave as soon as it was played. So at some point, they stopped playing Creep for quite a long time, actually. Only somewhat recently have they started adding it to their set list here and there again. But they'll go on to become one of the the most important and respected bands in modern rock. And Creep will end up in numerous publications as one of the best songs of the decade. And of course, Radiohead are still a band. (laughs) They're still doing their thing, still releasing albums. An unstoppable force, I suppose. Fun fact, though. Creep actually recharted in the UK. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 2008, after the release of Radiohead's Best of Radiohead album, and then it just recharted again this year, 2023, because of its appearance in Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which I have not seen, but I understand that Bradley Cooper, as a talking raccoon superhero, hums along to the song at the start of the movie. (laughs) I would also say, if your listeners wanted to sort of just do a bit of extracurriculum activity, Ed O'Brien from Radiohead records under the moniker E.O.B. And he's done an absolutely brilliant track called Shangri-La, which I absolutely love. So listen to Shangri-La by E.O.B., which is Ed O'Brien. Thanks for the Radiohead. tip. I look forward to checking it out. Okay, well, let's move on. We're going to go a little lower down the list. We're going to hear from a band called Suede. Suede was formed in London in 1989 by singer Brett Anderson, guitarist Justine Frischman, and bassist Matt Osman. By 1991, they had picked up lead guitarist Bernard Butler and drummer Simon Gilbert. Brett Anderson and Justine Frischman were in a relationship for a while, but when that relationship ended in 92 and Justine began to date Damon Alburn from Blur, Justine was kicked out of the band She's, of course, going to go on to form her own band, Elastica, and we'll be hearing from them a few years down the line. But that's really when the core group formed, the band that that we hear on their first album. And they're generally considered to be one of the four most important bands of the Britpop movement, along with Oasis, Blur, and Pulp. Although, incidentally, in the U.S., Oasis is the only one of those bands to really make a big mark over here. You know, Suede came up absolutely at the same time as Adorable. Our histories were intertwined and went off in two very, very different trajectories. So in early 92, Enemy was 
the most influential newspaper. If there's one newspaper that you wanted to be featured in, it'd be the enemy, hands down. And the enemy, I think in 92, it's the first year they did it. They decided they were going to do two showcase shows and they were going to pick bands who were either unsigned or would just released one or two singles. They were going to showcase them. It was the On For 92 shows. It was over two nights. There were eight bands picked. Suede were one of them. PJ Harvey was another. And on the same bill with Suede was Us, was Adorable. And both Us and Suede, we were the two unsigned bands. Now, Adorable were influenced by Echo and the Bunnymen and Jesus and Mary Chain and House of Love. And people saw us as maybe in that genre. And so people could kind of get their heads around us. So we had a lot of deals offered the next morning after that show. Suede did not fit comfortably into a genre and all the labels overlooked them they kind of just went well they sound glam they sound like t-rex they sound like bowie we don't quite get it and they got totally overlooked i remember seeing suede that night i was totally blown away they were amazing they were absolutely fantastic and they were like a breath of fresh air and we were raving to everybody else about them we kind of chatted to suede and we had a camaraderie because we were both unsigned bands on this bill and it was kind of exciting for us we were on the cusp of something and uh, we kept in contact with them and we ended up sharing office spaces with them we shared early road crew with them and we would reference them in the record press i remember a lot of the journalists were going we don't quite get them we were going no go look at them again look at them again they're really good so I really like Suede. They were refreshing. They were new. There was just something different about them that just hadn't been seen for a long time. A lot of people compared them to the Smiths. They didn't sound like the Smiths, but they gave that breath of fresh air that the Smiths had given in the, the 83, 84 when the Smiths first turned yeah, up. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in my mind, it's always a good time to sound like David Bowie or T-Rex. I mean, that was a massive criticism of them at the time. This was pre them getting a record deal and people just they were going well it just sounds like Bowie as if adorable sounding like Bunnyman stroke Mary Chain well that's fine but Suede sounding like Bowie and T-Rex well that's just stupid I think it's that thing that people don't realise that sometimes people they just want something different and Suede offered something different we tried to differentiate ourselves from the shoegaze scene by being quite outspoken you know a lot of the shoegaze bands musically were okay and in terms of like pop star quality they wouldn't score many points it was quite low attitude we weren't interested in that my heroes were julian cope ian mccullough from bunnyman the mary chain morrissey these were outspoken pop stars and this is kind of who we looked up to we wanted people on pedestals and we wanted to be that kind of band we didn't want to be humble and suede also did that if you look at brett's uh, interviews there's an attitude there's a story there and i love that I, that's what i want in bands i want characters i want people on pedestals i want people being slightly outrageous and brett gives that yeah no i agree all right well we're gonna listen to metal mickey which was suede's second single It hit number seven on the modern rock charts and is their only charting single in the U.S. Yeah, 
I think I love all of the singles on their first album, The Drowners, Metal Mickey, Animal Nitrate, So Young. I just think it's a really great album. And if I'm going to compare it to Porno for Pyros or Radiohead, like I think the Suede debut album is the strongest by far. So yeah, their first album I love. Their other albums I like. I don't love everything by Suede. You know, I haven't got a Suede tattoo or anything like that, but it's great. And the world is a better place for Suede and bands yeah. like Suede. After their debut album, Suede was forced to change their name in the U.S. to the London Suede. London Suede. Mm-hmm, which I think did not sit well with anyone in the band. Also, midway through recording their second album, Bernard Butler, the guitarist and primary songwriter for the band, left the group. Uh, and he was replaced by Richard Oakes. And it didn't really slow the band down. They'd have three number one albums in the U.K. and 20 charting singles in the U.K. eventually. I remember when Richard joined the band that recorded Dogman Star, mm-hmm. which was their second album. And then Bernard and Brett had a massive falling out. And then they'd got uh, Richard, who was really young. I think he was only 17 or 18 when he joined the band. But it hadn't been announced. But then he came to some adorable shows, which was right at the end of our career, actually. It was There were some of the final UK shows that we did. And he was there, and he was like a, an animal in the spotlight. He was, like, really freaked out. He came from quite a country background, a small town, and he hadn't really been in London that much. And he came to London and, you know, I think the band took him under his wing and they'd found him digs and there were people looking after him. But, you know, he was kind of like really freaked out by the fact that he was in the big city and that he came to an adorable show and he'd actually been a big adorable fan. And he had one of his first ever gigs had been in a school assembly where he and some friends had done a version of Homeboy by Adorable. And then here he was at an Adorable show and he was about to be announced as the suede guitarist the following week. I felt sorry for him at the time, to be honest, because he just looked completely overwhelmed by what was about to happen. I mean, he's grown into it fantastically well and, you know, his contributions to suede have been great. You know, Trash was one of the first things that he was involved with. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I would put Trash right up there in my all-time top 20 singles ever recorded. I absolutely love it. Well, let's listen to it. Here's Trash from Suede's third album, Coming Up. Wow, what a thing to be involved with. Trash is a great song. So Suede are still an active band. They released their ninth album, Auto Fiction, last year maybe. And I actually heard really good things about it. I've not had a chance to listen to it, but it's on my list of things to check out. Do you know what? Sometimes bands come back and they record albums and they're not really up to it. But there's other bands, you know, Slow Dive have have done it, Ride have done it, and Suede have done it, come back with... Relevant yeah. records. I guess that takes us to our fourth band we're going to look at this episode. And that is your former band, Adorable. Never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> I read that before you were Adorable, you were called the Candy Thieves. Is that right? 
Yeah, which is better than on a Friday. <laughs> it's true. We decided it was very late eighties candy themes, mm-hmm. so uh, that's why we changed it. Where did adorable come from? Was was it just like you all looked in the mirror and described yourselves? I think originally we were thinking of being the adored of uh, "I want to be adored" by Stone, Stone Roses, Roses. Yeah. and then it kind of mutated into adorable. I wanted to be called the Sound of Music, but that got uh, vetoed. But I think the Sound of Music would have been better. I would not be embarrassed by being in a band called the Sound yeah. of Music. Later on, it would have become very confusing if you were trying to Google our name. Not as bad as if you were called James or... Yeah, oh, no kidding. Which are both, like, ungoogleable names. Yeah, Christmas? How about that one? <laughs> so, your band released a number of well-received singles in 92 and 93. Uh, I read that two of them became enemy singles of the week. You did pretty well in the UK indie charts. And you released your debut album called Against Perfection. And I read that the UK music press turned against the band. We did pretty well on the debut single, but then almost straight away, there was a a really big backlash. We couldn't get interviewed after our debut single. And the press was very sniffy and quite negative about us. We were trying to kick against some of the shoegaze attributes, which were kind of quite meek and mild and polite. And we were looking to those artists that I've referred to before, the Marky Smiths, the Ian McCulloch's, the Morrissey's, the Nick Caves, the Manic Street Preachers. We were looking towards the world of art and outspokenness and performance but it didn't go down well you know fine aspirations but we failed in being able to engage the press with us because we basically turned the press yeah, against I've us. read plenty of Ian McCulloch quotes where he basically claims he's the greatest thing that's ever happened to the world but yeah it's interesting how sometimes the press can hear that and say like this is gold and we want to we want more of this and sometimes they just get offended and don't want anything more to do with you I guess Yeah, there's a fine line on it. The press has to believe that it's backed up by the music. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the press was 100% convinced by our music. So that's fair enough. And maybe, you know, quite possibly we're quite ham-fisted in our way of declaring our brilliance. (laughs) Sure. We're going to listen to the band's first single, Sunshine Smile, which hit number 29 on the modern rock charts. My understanding is that adorable recorded this as a single which was released to radio but never actually sold and then it was re-recorded once you signed to a label the first single never even got to radio it was a white label only release they got to a few journalists and we picked up some good reviews off it that was back in 91 but what you're hearing now is when we re-recorded it with the same producer pat collier but this time we now had a little bit more time in the studio this was recorded in early 92 and released in probably about April 92 in the UK, released in 93 in the US, uh, recorded with Pat Collier, who had also previously produced The Wonder Stuff and The House of Love. Is this a superior version, in your opinion? Okay. Yes. All right, well, here it yeah. is. Sunshine Smile. She's got a sunshine Sunshine smile, the kind that makes you forget again. Sunshine smile. 
I think it's a good song. It's, as you mentioned, sort of in line with the shoegaze movement, but maybe a little poppier. I think your vocals are maybe more upfront and your lyrics are more intelligible. Back in 92, 93, if you said that we were shoegaze, if we were doing an interview, if we were in person, Will, it could have got physical. <laughs> that's, how, that's how strongly I felt. These days, I really don't care. You know, I think we were in the top 30 shoegaze albums of all time. It's like, hooray! I really, I really <laughs> yeah, don't care. Yeah. Now, maybe that's what happens with age. And these days, these things really aren't that important to me. These labels aren't that important. Back in those days, it was. Partly because I think in the UK, by 1992, shoegaze was quite a derogatory term. If someone was to call you shoegaze, they weren't saying that in a positive way. These days, we have new gaze. New gaze is great. There's a whole new generation of people who find out about Adorable because we're on shoegaze playlists and compilations and things like that. So that's great. But I always felt that our songs were more melodically based, especially the vocal lines were more melodic and they were much more pop-based than shoegaze bands. The vocals were much higher in the mix as well, which is a crucial element. And I think that Adorable were a bridging band between shoegaze and Britpop. That's how I'm pitching Adorable, and I'm sticking okay. with that, Will. Now, the band's follow-up album, Fake, was never released in the U.S., and I don't know much about this album. It's not on Spotify. <laughs> can't find a copy of it anywhere. Was it in the same vein, or was it drifting more towards a Britpop sound? <laughs> It's a much more introspective album. It's a little bit bitter and, dare I say it, self-indulgent, which really wasn't the album we needed to make in order to break through. We, we need to go more positive, but one tends to write about the experiences you're going through. And in Adorable, we had gone through quite a dark period as we felt the world was against us. And so the album sounds like that. I've often been a little bit dismissive of the album, but on listening back to it now with the benefit of hindsight, I think it's got stuff going for it. There isn't a duff track on it. It's just not as strong as Against Perfection. It's basically, it's not okay. as poppy. You needed to be poppier. Yeah, yeah, it did. Did the band break up because of lack of commercial success, more or less? It was completely lack of commercial success because basically we weren't selling enough records, so creation dropped us. There doesn't necessarily have to be the be-all and end-all. Bands exist after being dropped by labels. But we kind of felt that we didn't really have that much going for us. You know, the label weren't with us anymore. We didn't have the fans turning up to shows in the numbers that they were for the first album. The press was just ignoring us. And at that point, the band structure was really fractured. We weren't communicating. We weren't really engaging with each other in a very positive way at all so we didn't really have anything going for us so it was quite an easy call to just to say no, sure. that's it. so once the band split up you formed a band with your brother called Polak yeah that's right so we made a couple of albums we were signed to One Little Indian in the UK which is uh, Bjork's mm -hmm. label and, and then we made a couple of albums. The second album in particular, I'm really proud of. It's not on Spotify, so you just have to take my word that it's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> it's called Rubbernecking. And we played South by Southwest, and, and that was fantastic. But then, you know, that band just sort of disappeared. I had sort of uh, 
10 years of musical wilderness where I just sort of went off and I had a little musical breakdown, if you were. I did make music, but didn't release it. And then I teamed up with Terry, recorded a solo album, which never got released, but the bulk of the album became an album that me and Terry ended That's up Terry releasing. Terry Vickers, the uh, former guitarist of House of Love. Who, by the way, you know, I'm a big House of Love fan, and I think Terry Bickers is a phenomenal guitarist. I think he's woefully underrated. He is. In the UK, within the world of alternative indie guitar playing, there would have been a hierarchy of amazing guitarists. And in the early 80s, you would have said it was Johnny Marr was the guitarist. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, it might have been John Squire from the Stone Roses, And then in the UK, it would have been Bernard Butler from Suede. And they would have been the guitarists. And in between Johnny Marr and John Squire, for a year, it would have been Terry Bickers. It would have been Terry Bickers who would have been cited as that guitarist. That's how important he was. And yet he has just kind of got forgotten. He's got forgotten about it. But for one year, if you were to ask the enemy editors, writers and readers... Terry Bickers would have been that guitarist. That's how important he was. And yet he has just sadly become forgotten, partly because Terry's not great at self-publicising himself. He's a lovely, lovely guy who's not very interested in playing the game. So you did some uh, work with Terry as a duo, and uh, you still are presumably doing stuff whenever the need arises. So me and Terry had done two albums, and we did a show about three months ago and we kind of announced that as our last show for the foreseeable future because I'm going to concentrate on my solo stuff but you know me and Terry we're, we're still an entity and there's potential of us doing recording and playing and touring certainly for the next year at least that's not really likely to be but on the agenda. But we can look forward to your solo album. The first single will be out in January. I think the album will most likely be in the autumn or the fall, as you call it in America, of 2024. Well, I think that wraps things up for us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't done so, it'd be great if you could rate, review, or subscribe to the show, maybe all three of those things. If you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thank you, Pete, so much for joining me on the show. If people want to check out your music, is there some place we should send them? Find me on Facebook, Pete Fidgel okay. on Facebook. Will, thanks very much for, for having me. And thanks for your love and devotion Thank to Modern you. Rock.